Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine and conservation with an emphasis on biotechnology and the newest innovations that can help people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor, I'm a podcast host, keynote speaker, um, and today we have an opportunity to take action in a really important area and take action on several levels. And this podcast comes without advertisements and comes without a lot of asks, but I really hope that you stay to the end, listen to the important message, and think about you and your family, and think about how the lessons learned might apply to you, and in special preparations that may help us make some critical decisions down the road that could ultimately help others. It's really important. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Sheelish Singh. She's a professor in surgery and biochemistry at McMaster University in the Center of Discovery and Cancer Research at McMaster University in beautiful Hamilton, Ontario. It's a really neat, neat place. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Singh. Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thank you very much for joining me. This is a really important episode in a lot of ways, and I don't want to tip the hat too much right now, but let's start with your background and your interests. You're a pediatric neurosurgeon. Can you tell me about how and your medical training uh, led you down that path? Absolutely. So I should tell you that I've always been interested in, in the brain since I was a little girl uh, because my father was a psychiatrist and he had a beautiful home office filled with medical textbooks and volumes from Sigmund Freud. And I remember reading, sneaking into his office and reading the interpretation of dreams and just being fascinated by how little we knew about the brain and how little we know about how behavior correlates to brain structures and how structure correlates to function and all these interesting questions. So that was the beginning for me. Um, when I went to medical school, I studied everything that had the word neuro in front of it um, and really found an immediate um, draw to neurosurgery. And the reason was um, everything that had neuro in front of it involved studying the brain in different ways, but neurosurgery was all about activism. It was about, you know, saying to someone, you have a large mass in your brain and I, now that we've diagnosed it, I'm going to do my best to fix it. And so I really like that approach of, of finding something, diagnosing something, and then actively treating something in order to make someone feel better and to restore the, the function that was disturbed and to, to restore the anatomy back to what a, a brain, a healthy brain should look like. So that was very appealing to me. And, you know, neurosurgery in terms of pediatrics happened during my residency training when I did my pediatric neurosurgery rotation and met two little boys named Christopher. And the two Christophers were both five years old and they had the same brain tumor. It's called medulloblastoma. It's a very aggressive cancer of childhood in the back of the brain. And both of these little boys had the sim a very similar tumor and we treated them using the exact state, same gold standard therapy, surgery and chemo and radiation. And one of the Christophers um, actually had a wonderful outcome and survived and probably went to college and did beautifully. The other Christopher died. And I realized since they were seemingly by every clinical factor identical, that I would never understand the real reasons behind why one Christopher survived and one Christopher died unless I studied more about molecular biology of brain cancers. And so that's when I enrolled in my PhD during my neurosurgery residency. And that's what led me to start a brain cancer research program. It really is fascinating because as you mentioned, here are two parallel cases with an, an identical etiology and then the, the, the cancer itself being something that's treated in parallel ways, but one works and one doesn't. But why is it that, well, first, maybe the first question is, why is it that traditional therapies like radiation, uh, chemotherapy, even uh, surgical redaction, 
Why did those fail so frequently with aggressive brain tumors? That's an excellent question, Kevin. And the reason is, first of all, if you look at those therapies, uh, they're systemic therapies and they're kind of, you know, therapies that, that uh, cover everything. So what that means is they would genuinely target every cell that's actually actively dividing or proliferating. So there's already two problems in that statement. One is that you're going to you're going to capture in your field of, of therapy delivery, not only cancer cells, but normal cells that are proliferating and dividing. And now think about a child. In a child, almost every tissue and organ has cells that are proliferating and dividing because it's the job of a child to grow, right? So they have way more of those normal cells that are going to be uh, in the, that'll be affected. And that's what causes toxicity because these therapies aren't specific. They just hit every dividing cell. Number two, what if you're a cancer cell that's smart enough to not divide and to realize that there's a therapy coming to hit your dividing neighbors and you go into a phase of the cell cycle that is quiescent? then you can evade that therapy. And so we do believe that there are cells that um, are missed by uh, a non-targeted therapy like radiation or chemo that evade therapy and go on to seed the recurrence or the relapse. Yeah. And then you layer on top of that things like drug pumps and detoxification mechanisms in the cell too, that, you know, these things are actually fighting back against the therapies that you're giving. But even though they appear to be the same you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a plant biologist. I don't know much about brains. But um, when you look at the two different tumors, even though they may be classified the same clinically, they still may be extremely different in terms of their gene expression and their biochemistry, correct? Exactly right. And in fact, you know, if you look at a tumor as a mass of abnormal cells, then, you know, characterizing some of the cells doesn't help you understand the drivers of all of them. So it really does require us to parse tumors at a deeper level and not just to look at them as, you know, one big bulk mass, but to try to understand cell to cell, what, what is the composition of this tumor? And if I deliver a therapy, is it, how do I de deliver therapies that target every cell? And that's really a perfect transition into today's major topic, which is the case of Cindy Graham. And she was... Um, a patient of yours who is diagnosed with glioblastoma. And can you tell me more about the etiology of that specific cancer and why that one is so difficult to treat? Absolutely. So glioblastoma is like the adult counterpart of medulloblastoma. Medulloblastoma is the most common malignant tumor of childhood. And glioblastoma is the most common primary malignant tumor of adulthood. And Fortunately, it is still a rare tumor at a population level, but it is definitely one of the worst cancers because it is currently incurable. And by that, I mean that the five-year survival rate of a patient with GBM diagnosed in the U.S. is less than 5%. So if you look at that, it's very daunting because what that means is that the gold standard therapy, which is a maximal safe surgical resection, followed by the two things we talked about before, radiation and chemotherapy, that doesn't work in 96% of patients. And so the gold standard therapy fails and this tumor inevitably recurs. And the problem is, is that when we study GBM in its primary treatment naive state, which is where all our biological specimens come from, all the biologists and neurosurgeons and people in the world who study glioblastoma we acquire our specimens almost always from the treatment naive state before when a patient's gone to be diagnosed and it's their first operation. But what happens to those cells uh, is that we never, we shouldn't ever consider cancer to be a static disease. Cancer is a dynamic disease. And glioblastoma, being an aggressive cancer, um, can actually evolve and change more rapidly than other cancers. And so what happens is when we apply therapies to a cancer, as we were talking about before, we're actually applying a, a, an evolutionary selection pressure. It's like Dar Darwinian. What we do is we apply these therapies and, you know, it may kill a bunch of cells, but there's other cells that evade that therapy and survive. And they go on to divide and generate a tumor that in the end, post-therapy, looks completely different at a genomic level, at a genetic level than the original primary tumor. So now I've just told you that recurrent glioblastoma when it comes back after therapy, looks completely different and has different biological drivers than primary GBM. But 
all our therapies that we design are based on our knowledge from the primary tumor. So this is a case where the dynamic nature of cancer is defeating us because by the time we develop a therapy for a GBM patient, we're not even sure if the targets we're trying to hit are present in the recurrent. Is that a attribute that's specific to GBM or is this true of many different cancers? This is actually a dynamic model that you could apply to many different aggressive cancers. But what's particularly diff difficult about GBM is that even at its starting point, GBM is a tumor that's characterized by immense heterogeneity. And by that, I mean that the, the traditional pathological name of this tumor was glioblastoma multiforme. Multiforme was referring to what the pathologists see when they look under the microscope and they see all these different cells, cells of all different shapes and sizes. This is a tumor composed of cells that are all different. No one cell looks like the other. And so we're starting from a baseline of immense heterogeneity, many different cells, and that makes it increasing un, uh, increasingly unlikely that one therapy could target all those different cells. You're probably going to need some complicated combination of therapies to really work for a tumor that's this heterogeneous. Well, over the last, I guess, five years, we've heard more and more about immunotherapies being used because all of those cells, even though they're cancer cells, still originate from self and maybe show some markers that are um, consistent with cancer cells. So maybe making them an attractive target and is, is that something that still can be considered for something like glioblastoma? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, immunotherapy has given new promise to so many cancer patients, particularly patients who've had melanoma and many other cancers now are emerging to be excellent targets for different immunotherapies. And we're just in the infancy of applying immunotherapy to a tumor as complicated as GBM. Um, because it's not only a problem of having this very aggressive, heterogeneous tumor that, you know, right now offers a very short lifespan to patients. It's also a question of how we deliver those immunotherapies. How do we get them into the brain? How do we cross the blood-brain barrier? So there's additional levels of complexity for treating brain cancers to address with immunotherapy. But going back to your concept, the great concept, because if you think about it, you have a tumor that's composed of all of these different cell types, some of which are trying to evade therapy at all times. And in fact, the brain is a great place to hide out in because there are other structures in the brain that can help protect cancer cells from, from detection. And so harnessing your innate immune cells, cells that are already you know, in your body programmed to find intruders, seems like a great way to combat a, a brain cancer like this. It seems like just a very natural way to sort of deploy these, you know, soldiers of the immune system to go and target the GBM cells instead. Um, I think it seems like it could be a very good solution to apply a dynamic therapy to a dynamic tumor. And that's a really great point. I, we talk a lot about we talk a lot about CAR T cell therapy on on the podcast. And are those currently being used in these cases of difficult to treat brain cancers? And is that changing that very low success rate? We're seeing a lot of promise, um, Kevin, in the CAR-T therapies that are currently undergoing um, experimental trials and clinical trials in patients. We don't yet have um, a, an FDA-approved or a Health Canada-approved uh, CAR-T cell therapy for GBM patients, but right now we're moving, we're marching through clinical trials and we're seeing a lot of signals of, of promise and hope. So... Um, Again, the good thing about CAR T cells is that if you could deliver them to get, a, they, first of all, they may actually cross the blood-brain barrier because those, those cells are really um, uh, ingenious and they're able to, to, to get across and squeeze through junctions, right? The second thing is, is even if we delivered those CAR T cells directly into the brain um, through, for example, a reservoir that a neurosurgeon could put into a patient's um, fluid in the brain, then those cells actually have a really good chance of acting like homing missiles and they would just go straight to their target within the glioblastoma. So there's a lot of promise right now in, in the data we're seeing, um, both experimental data in people's labs and also from the clinical trials. So really, it's the research that is this bridge between what was or what is a, a very low survival, uh, very aggressive cancer and potential therapies that can be life-saving. And that's really where we step off with the major part of today's conversation is um, I mentioned the name Cindy Graham before, and she was a patient of yours recently. 
and uh, suffered from glioblastoma. And can you tell me a little bit about her case and maybe what you learned from the biopsies that were happening throughout the time she was being tested? Absolutely. So Cindy Lee Graham was a wonderful woman um, who lived in Guelph with her husband and her twin sons who um, developed, unfortunately, glioblastoma at a very young age in her mid-40s. And she came to treatment at the um, Hamilton General Hospital, where our adult neurosurgeons work. And she did beautifully because of her excellent health and her young uh, age. She did beautifully following her first surgery, um, where a lot of her glioblastoma was resected. And then she went on to chemotherapy and radiation. And she did beautifully through all her therapy. She took everything like a trooper. But furthermore, Cindy um, was a scientist herself. And she really, really deeply understood the value of research towards the development of new therapies. And I think she fully understood her own prognosis, you know, um, looking at a five-year survivorship of four to five percent, understanding the median survivorship for this tumor hovers somewhere between 15 and 20 months. So she knew that the therapies that are being developed right now and that she would support the development of wouldn't necessarily help her, but she wanted them to be explored nevertheless. So she signed the research consents that would allow a specimen to come to my lab, to the Singh lab, where we study and profile uh, glioblastomas. And we've developed beautiful patient-derived xenograft and patient-derived models of glioblastoma um, through therapy so that we actually have developed models of GBM recurrence so that we can try to get ahead of the GBM and try to understand what happens when it comes back rather than focusing our energy on the primary biology or the treatment-naive tumor at the beginning. So Cindy was aware we had these models that, that would try to develop recurrences and study the biology of GBM recurrence. So she immediately donated her primary tumor. And even at that time, she knew that if she had to come back for a second surgery after her chemo and radiation, which she did, she would donate another sample to the Singh lab so that we would have a matched sample from the same patient to study both the primary and the recurrent tumor and therefore comparatively profile them and understand how the recurrent GBM has changed. This was a great, even just a great start to understand things. Furthermore, she donated a sample of her blood so that we could even make CAR T cells out of her own blood and test the CAR T cells against her own tumor engrafted in mice. So we definitely got a huge amount of knowledge and information out of the samples that Cindy gave us. But Cindy was a scientist and she understood the value of these samples. And she understood them to such a great degree that I think she understood the value of her donations even more than I did. And I run the lab. One day she was talking to my students and to one of the clinical scholars, Dr. Fred Lamb, who's a neurosurgeon over at the Hamilton General Hospital. And she really was speculating to them that the most valuable sample of all would not be the primary GBM sample or the recurrent GBM sample. The most valuable sample of all would be able to study the entire GBM at the time that the patient dies. Because her point was, it's good to understand primary GBM and recurrent GBM, but you wanna have a true, complete understanding of the tumor that actually kills patients. And we currently lack that biological understanding. Even, even as we don't understand what the biology of GBM recurrence is, we understand even less about GBM at its natural endpoint. So Cindy actually decided to complete her trio of donations that she wanted to donate her entire brain when she died to the Singh lab so that we could actually profile not just a little piece of her tumor that the surgeon chose, but to profile the tumor in its entirety, the whole glioblastoma. This is something that scientists rarely have access to. And maybe I can just underscore that a little bit here is that here is a case where, you know, we started the discussion by talking about the complexity of this tumor that's changing in time and space. And now you have a donor that's giving you a sample, multiple samples that you're able to now look at time and space. And this is um, such an important donation because it allows you to really look at that kind of heterogeneity that's there within that tumor. How do you think that these kinds of resources or this resource especially, maybe it has already, seeded further discoveries in your laboratory that may have profound impacts down the road. So the wonderful story that comes from this, Kevin, is this is um, 
you know, from Cindy's incredibly generous and insightful donation that she made, um, there was a huge butterfly effect. And even though um, we lost Cindy and Cindy died in full knowledge of the fact that she herself would not benefit from any of the discoveries that would come from her donations, um, her act uh, inspired many other people to, to want to follow in her footsteps. And so what happened is there was a beautiful story that featured Cindy's amazing donation. Um, uh, and that was featured on the front page of one of Canada's biggest newspapers, which is the Globe and Mail. And when you get a front page story on the Globe and Mail, it usually attracts even more attention. So what happened is after the story was published, people were so inspired that they started to call McMaster University and say, you know, we, ha we, ha we actually want to donate and to and support this program. And, and we even got even more fascinating calls from patients who themselves had GBMs and said, we also want to donate our whole GBMs to the Singh Lab and to this GBM research program. We want to build on the donation that Cindy Lee Graham made. So the amazing thing that happened is that within a month of Cindy's death, we had four other patients approach us and say, we would like to also participate in this research autopsy program. And we also were able to harvest those GBMs and profile them in their entirety and understand their heterogeneity as well. So this, this series of donations for us provided a profound and unprecedented glimpse of this brain tumor that we still don't understand in the least and provides an opportunity to understand all of the drivers of recurrence and of endpoint so that we can now think about a new therapeutic paradigm and how can we develop therapies that actually hit the right targets, the ones that have evolved to endpoint, not the ones we found at the beginning. And I guess really this is the point where I would say, how, how do you as a physician and a scientist, a researcher in this area, how do you make a best pitch to uh, people who may be listening, who know somebody or maybe has someone in the family who has this that to help convince them that this is really a foundation of solving the problem for others in the future? So what I would say to them is that the basis of every treatment that's ever been developed for any cancer, um, many of which we probably take for granted these days, if you go back 100 years ago, there were far many more cancers than glioblastoma that were incurable. And yet we develop through these amazing scientific discoveries that happen, um, you know, these discoveries fuel the development of the new treatments that eventually cure people. And so what I would say is that GBM isn't, in, it's still incurable today, but the pace of discovery in the world has now been so heavily accelerated by all of the incredible ways we have to gather much larger amounts of data now and, you know, computational techniques we have now to understand this data at a much faster rate. And the fact that scientists now work in large teams to understand, to tackle and understand problems we don't work all alone in one bench or one bay of a lab anymore. And so all of these things have accelerated the rate of discovery. So I can tell you that, you know, donations like these bring us many, many steps closer to finding that therapy that could actually work. And the, this is like, you know, pouring, it's not just like lighting a candle. It's like pouring a lot of accelerant and having a big bonfire um, of knowledge. And really being able to, to accelerate the pace of discovery. So I'm really grateful to Cindy for creating this butterfly effect, but it's already grown into something much huger than any one of uh, the individual scientists involved. And we're determined to, to create new knowledge for the world and new resources for the world in the cell lines that we've developed from all the different regions of all of these patients' GBMs. This will provide an explosion of knowledge to the field of GBM research, we hope, in the near future. And so if somebody wanted to make a donation or have a conversation with their family, is this something that you really should discuss with a physician early in the process? Or are there foundations that maybe are uh, involved that are perhaps better suited to have those critical conversations? Absolutely. I mean, most universities have a foundation that represents 
um, their, their research programs and the possibility for giving and donating is always there. And, and families and patients should know that you don't have to um, donate uh, to a general fund. You can specify, you know, where you want your, your, your money to go towards. And certainly when we develop funds like our GBM research fund, we do everything in our power to make sure that every penny goes directly to funding research. And we actually feel very highly accountable for these types of donations because they're from patients and for patients. So these, these, the, and on top of it, this type of funding permits a type of research that is actually high risk, high reward, um, because this is the type of funding that challenges you to push yourself to the limits of your knowledge and to, to be really, to really take risks. After all, these GBM patients have taken risks. Every day they take risks that they have to consider experimental therapies, anything to save their lives. They face risks and it makes you feel bolder that we need to take risks to, to work more quickly towards finding uh, solutions for those patients. Well, Dr. Sheila Singh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about this and thank you for how well, you've you've took care of Cindy and her family, and um, and you know it means a lot to me. And uh, it really gives this kind of conversation just gives hope to so many people who may be uh, suffering from this, or maybe have someone in their family who has such such cancers or similar ones. And it, it's just something that's so important. And, and thank you very much for everything you do. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak today, Kevin. Um, I just want to, to let um, the GBM patient community know that um, truly, uh, I know that they look at research programs um, and find hope um, in, in research, because when you're facing an incurable brain cancer, it, it somehow provides a lot of hope and promise to know that there are groups of people who are working 24-7 and devoting all their time and energy towards trying to find a cure. Um, but I just wanted patient community to know that it's actually a bilateral inspirational uh, effort because uh, certainly my students work probably twice or three times as harder as any other student um, knowing um, that there are patients who, who need uh, the results of their research. So um, I, I really think that uh, patients who serve as advocates, researchers are also advocates, we're all working to, to solve the same problem. Well, thank you very much and keep me posted of future developments. It would be wonderful to have you back someday uh, talking about the cure. Thank you so much, Kevin. It was great to talk to you today. Thank you for listening to this very special episode of the Talking Biotech podcast. Please continue to listen to this next interview. It's a touching and personal side of this very important story. At the end of this next interview, I'd like you to learn more about the story by visiting cindysgift.com. I'll place a link in the show notes. On that website, you'll find ways that you can help donate to a series of special funds established in Cindy Graham's memory, so that even in her absence, her spirit can continue to help others. I know there's a lot of asks in the holiday season, and if you're like me, you can't possibly donate enough to everything you would love to support. But this is the joy of social media and a podcast with 25,000 monthly downloads. If everyone listening donated a dollar for every episode they listened to just in December, it would really add up fast and make a really big difference. If everybody listening shared this episode with two friends, imagine the reach we'd have. In the next section, you'll hear about the innovation funds and the scholarships that have been established to complement the ongoing research projects that are being funded in Cindy's memory, helping to understand and one day solve the scourge of glioblastoma. In this holiday season, have conversations with loved ones about their intentions for organ and tissue donation. At a time of gift giving, it's the best time to encourage others to make their wishes known about a very important gift that can save others and serve science. And if I can ask one more thing, could you please share this episode with your social media network? Thank you.
And now back to this week's podcast dedicated to the memory of Cindy Graham. And on this part of the podcast, we're speaking with Dr. Thomas Graham. He's the assistant professor at the University of Guelph in Guelph, Ontario, and someone who I'm sad I didn't get to work with because he interviewed here at one time. But uh, so welcome to the podcast, Thomas. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate you taking the time to talk today. Well, this is really important. And I, I remember when I heard your story through a couple of different channels, um, you know, we share uh, a common student. And, uh, and I heard about the story and when we had the opportunity to discuss it here on the podcast, I I just had to jump at the opportunity. So thank you very much for joining me about this really sensitive subject. Oh, I said, thank you, Kevin. So we, um, really just heard from Dr. Singh about Cindy's valuable donation and, and its impacts, but there really is this personal side to the story. And when did you and Cindy learn about the glioblastoma? Uh, it was actually the, the weekend after I interviewed for my, my faculty position here in Guelph. Um, I just left the lab and I grabbed a coffee and it was right around the time that, uh, Cindy would normally pick her twins up from school. And I got a call from the school saying that she hadn't picked them up, which was <laughs> very unlike her. <laughs> she was very organized. Uh, so I raced home and I found her, um, so in bed, but had clearly stumbled and crashed through the house. The house was in disarray. Um, and looking back, it, it appears she had a, a seizure induced by this tumor. And uh, I'm glad she didn't hurt herself more than she did. But so I raced off and picked up the kids and we took her to the hospital. And um, it took quite a while, actually, to determine that it was a brain cancer. At first, they thought she had a stroke. Um, which, and I know this is my sense of to you, but in hindsight, that was the better option. But it turned out to be a, a glioblastoma. No, understandable. I totally understand that last sentiment because prognosis from strokes tend to get better, right? And uh, in, um, so, can you walk me through the whole experience a bit with the types of treatment regimens you had to endure with her on this? Well, I must say, so for the listeners, we are up in Canada, so we didn't have to worry about health insurance or anything. So from the, the time she had her first seizure to uh, her her surgery to resect the primary tumor was two weeks. Uh, so we were in, uh, surgeons were great. Uh, they So they resected that tumor and uh, oddly enough, you mentioned that survival rates that the surgeon himself said, we can't tell what this is until we take it out and do all the tests. And he said, do not Google this. He, um, and I didn't <laughs> listen. <laughs> of course, I didn't listen. Um, but so within those two weeks, they resected it and it, it did come back as a glioblastoma, which we, we sort of knew what that meant. And uh, and so when you talk about resection, this is a surgical removal, right? And and were there other types of chemotherapies or radiation or anything for this kind of tumor? Yeah, some aren't. Uh, surgery is always the best option if you can get rid of it and take out as much as you can. And hers was in her right frontal lobe. And <laughs> the surgeon next said, if you're going to have a tumor, that's the best place to have one. So we thought we were fortunate there. Uh, the resection went well, and after that, she went on a, a course of chemo and radiation. So six weeks of radiation every day, and um, tamalzomide was the chemo. And she weathered that really well. She was strong, and um, you know, you barely knew she didn't. She rarely even got sick. Yeah, she was tough. Um, so that that ended, and then she went on uh, maintenance chemo. And all that, all things are great. Life even got back tomorrow. She even got her license back. That's how good things were going. And then they didn't. So it was just, we were watching TV one night with the kids and uh, Darwin and Dean yelled at me and said, something's wrong with mommy. And I turned around and she was having a a seizure. Hmm. So 
it was back. So the boys saw mummy loaded up into the ambulance and off to the hospital she went. And we started down this same procedure again. She went in again within within 10 days. She was back in, had another surgery to remove the tumor, and that went well. She was back on chemo. Uh, but then it came back really quick, less than two months later. Um, she went in on her birthday. She had her third tumor resection, uh, which was not the best birthday present, but... And, uh, yeah, so they, this whole, uh, whole process, you know, the whole timeline of this, how long did this take? And from that first seizure to where you are now, uh, her first seizure was, uh, I guess it would be end of May, May, 2019. And she was good for eight months. She passed away this past February, uh, February 24th, which it was, that's actually my dad's birthday, so I had called my dad. He thought I was going to say happy birthday, but I had other news. Mm. So and uh, 20, 20 months. She lasted longer than than most. <laughs> Although the last the last six or eight months, she went. She it took things away from her bit by bit. You know, anything that attacks your brain, you know, it it takes the person away before they're truly gone. So. It's, it's really a devastating uh, disease to endure for, for the patient as well as the family. And, you know, heart goes out to you on this. And I, I know it's hard to revisit this, but, you know, the reason we're here is because there, this instance, uh, you know, trying to put a silver lining on this is difficult. But throughout the process, you had biopsies and this helped in diagnosis and treatment, and all the immediate um, treatment, you know, for Cindy, but what were some of the other research tools that were enabled because of just the, uh, temporal analysis of the tumor? Yeah. Uh, it's actually, uh, scientifically and well, just tell me it's, it's a, it's a compelling story. So when Cindy was first diagnosed, the first, her first tumor removed, so these weren't even biopsies. They just took the whole thing. Uh, Dr. Singh was starting up a new research project uh, and she was looking for, for samples and more than these tiny little biopsies that she usually gets. So Cindy was patient one with, with Sheila. And uh, so Sheila had that first sample. Um, and sometimes that's all you get. You know, It's not a given that you can have multiple uh, resection surgeries. Uh, so when Cindy had her second and third, uh, those that tissue also went to Sheila. So she started to get this uh, temporal, this timeline of how this cancer develops. Because I'm sure she talked about um, how this thing changes over time as well as space. Uh, so yeah, it was quite unique in that sense. We I didn't we didn't know that at the time that this was what Cindy was doing was unique. But uh, we have certainly come to appreciate that since. Well, when the issue of tissue donation became relevant, when that became imminent, how did that come about? I mean, the idea of working with the surgeon to provide this other resource. Right. Uh, so, so Cindy had been in with Sheila's group giving the samples and she was also, uh, Sheila was also doing some CAR T work. Um, so she had Cindy's tumor tissue. So Cindy also donated blood tissue so they could uh, isolate her CAR T cells and you know, hopefully reprogram them to, to attack Cindy's tumors in a, in a Petri plate, I guess. Uh, so when we were in, uh, Cindy was giving blood and she's horribly reluctant to give up her blood. Not because she's against it, but her really poor veins and chemo help, hurts all that too. So the surgeon that um, was working with her, uh, Fred Lamb was his name, but he actually uh, was her surgeon on, I guess I didn't mention, on her last resection surgery, she actually got uh, an infection issue. Uh, she had a leaky cerebral spinal fluid that was coming out everywhere, and it anyway, caused a lot of problems, but Fred took care of her there. But Fred, and this is the <laughs> life just works out in funny ways, 
was also one of Sheila's. He had a foot in both research and um, surgery. So he was working with Sheila, uh, trying to figure out if this is the sort of life he wanted to, to take on this dual research and surgery world. Uh, and he, super nice guy. <laughs> he uh, tried to get blood out of Cindy the one night and tried and tried and tried. We were there for a couple hours and he just couldn't. <laughs> uh, so we went back um, to give blood with a nurse that could take it from her pick line a little bit later. And this was at a point where Cindy was already, she was she could only communicate. We communicated with blinks, you know, one blink for no, two for yes. Um, but during that donation of the blood, and since I know Cindy, and we had talked about this, you know, in our past lives, I suppose. Uh, I made the offer to Fred. I pulled him aside while Cindy was giving blood, and I just said, "Is is it of any value? You know, Cindy's. It's too late for her. We know that. Uh, is the rest of her brain useful?" And he had this look on his face, kind of. It was blah 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 blah. <laughs> he said, uh, "Absolutely," but no one's ever offered this before. So he had to go back to Sheila. Because again, this is now into COVID and procedures to do any sort of thing like this were, well, they just weren't in place. Uh, so that started a ball rolling. That was only a month before she went into hospice and only two months before she actually died. And a lot had to happen uh, to make this donation happen. And uh, But they did. Uh, the, the team at the McMaster Anatomy Lab went to Herculean efforts. They were closed down. COVID had closed everything down, um, but they got everything up and running again because for Cindy's donation, because it was that important. And maybe that should have been my first inkling that this was truly something unique. When you say it's unique and you said he was kind of shocked when you asked him, it would seem to me that this is kind of something that happens all the time, but is it really a common occurrence? Well, that was my my thought exactly, Kevin, was surely people donate all the time. And they do. Um, you know, bodies are, people donate their bodies to research all the time. I guess the difference here was the requirement for fresh, you know, still living brain tissue. Um, so when it finally came to it, and this is why it was uh, such a Herculean effort, uh, one was from the times they had to have Cindy's tissue to get the cell cultures going, certainly with as soon as possible after death. Uh, and in our case, it was from the moment Cindy died in my arms to the time she was, they were getting Cindy's cells into culture to get them going was less than four hours. Um, and that's how it has to be in order to get these cell lines to establish. So I guess maybe that is the, the unique part, but some of the uniqueness of Cindy's overall donation is all the resection surgeries. So there's this temporal component, um, but, but at the end, having the entire brain as well gives Sheila and her team a spatial component as well. And I'm confident that she has talked all about the spatial heterogeneity challenge and, and whatnot, um, and just understanding how these this thing evolves in the brain, where it started, by the time it gets somewhere else, it's different. It is a different cancer, and that's why it is so insidious and hard to control. Well, in general, we're you know we're speaking to a very science-minded audience, and these are folks that I think would be very open to solving problems, you know, after they're after they're gone. I know myself included. Um, I know it's been an important conversation, you know, with others in my life. And how important is it to have these conversations with loved ones and even make plans early? Well, it's, I think that's pretty critical. Now, in our case, it all just worked out. I mean, if you had to write a book on this, the story tells itself. Everything just fell into place. I mean, it's a truly sad story, but inspiration in a lot of ways, but, um, yeah, it's, 
we were allowed because we're already in that system. So just giving the rest was, or the paperwork, I guess, was done, so to speak. But, and this is just, you know, one instance of making these donations. Um, yeah, it's plan in advance, know what your family want. In the case of Cindy, we, at the end, that final decision to give the rest of her brain and spinal cord, it was me asking her and her blinking twice. That's how that was decided. Yeah. And, and I, you know, and that's the point is I really wanted this to be inspirational because when you listen to Dr. Singh's portion, um, the discussion with you, you know, it, it's certainly a tragedy that, you know, how, how old was Cindy when upon her, upon her passing? Uh, she was, well, she was 47. She didn't, didn't make it. Yeah. So, Boys made it to eight. They were, she saw their, their eighth birthday. Much too early in the, in the parlance of, you know, today's uh, typical lifespan. I mean, this is, you know, way too early. And, and so having this kind of conversation, the thing that we really would like to achieve is a greater awareness of how these postmortem gifts could have significant impacts in fueling research and fueling discovery that could eventually result in new cures so that others don't have to go through it. And that's, you know, that's one really big part of this, uh, but maybe another part of this are all of the other good things that came as a result of it in your efforts. And I really like you to tell me about the scholarship and the innovation funds and some of the other uh, opportunities that have been established in Cindy's memory. Uh, uh, well, thank you, Kevin. I, I do appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. So when Cindy, when we decided that uh, this is what we were going to do, I remember sitting in hospice um, beside Cindy. Again, she couldn't speak or, I mean, it had already taken her. I'm really truthful with myself. Um, although she could, there was still a, a bit of a spark in her eye. I saw once in a while, but... I was just talking at her because she couldn't talk back, but I asked, I said, you're, you're making this contribution. It's, and already I was getting a sense again from the incredible effort that had to go into this, that this was important. So I asked her, I said, what, what do you think about, you know, taking some of our, our resources and starting a, a scholarship or an innovation fund, what it eventually became. And, Again, she couldn't even barely blink at that point, but the look in her eye told me that, yeah, this is what she wanted. Sorry. And I guess the, uh, how would somebody access this? And I, I'll be happy to really put the links in the uh, show notes today. No problem there. But uh, do you, the tell me more about the scholarship and innovation fund and and what they really seek to do because uh, that's the part here that really is the take home message and the thing that you know th that all of us really need to know especially at this time of year it's you know being grateful for what you have and and living every day to its fullest but also that idea of how do we take a situation that is beyond tragic and how do we create good from it to be able to continue to reinforce the legacy of someone who is here and you know tell me about the scholarship fund and and what it seeks to do and the innovation fund the student travel awards you know there's so many good things that have come from the tragedy and you know let us know what those are and how we can contribute to them yeah so i guess i I take for granted. So I come from an academic setting and I appreciate the, the challenges of funding research. Um, and at this point I had been back and forth with Sheila quite a bit and, you know, research costs money and that's just part of it. Um, but the initial idea was we want to attract, you know, Cindy's provided the map you know, her brain, her tissue samples was the map to what we think will be a cure or at least 
you know, much better treatments. Um, but you need good map readers, cartographers, I guess. So we wanted to attract the best and the brightest young researchers. And a good way to do that is to offer a sizable scholarship. So uh, we're targeting a yearly scholarship of $20,000 to cover the stipend of, of these, you know, the best and the brightest. And, and as you know, as a, an academic, if you're not having to pay a student, you can leverage that money and, and build up additional resources for bench, you know, on the bench. So there was, there was that motivation and, but it's also a name scholarship. So Cindy will forever be linked with the, the new cancer center at McMaster. But another thing that uh, was of interest in, in supporting these young researchers was to offer them uh, a chance, you know, sort of for their first grant, but, you know, seed funding for these high risk, high reward questions, you know, and these might be small grants, 10, 15 K that a student or an early career researcher could say, you know what, I think there's something here, but I'm not going to go out to the feds and spend a year to try and get money to, it won't happen. So part of the scholarship now is behind the scenes, it's broken into two, two components. One is the scholarship, which is awarded every year. And there's a travel component to that as well. Um, but the other is what we're calling this innovation fund. So to you know, build on these ideas, okay, maybe only one in a hundred amounts to anything, but that one in a hundred might be the cure. So if we can you know, support that, that grassroots sort of stuff, all the better. Now, in addition to that, Sheila has put together an international team of, you know, the best to characterize Cindy's cells, cell lines, the tumor, you know, it's the Cadillac or the, the gold standard of an analysis on this. And that costs money too. So there's, we're also working on fundraising to support that. So Sheila and her team can get to work you know, finding a cure, not writing proposals. Um, and we've had some very generous people donate directly to Sheila, um, which is, so they're already characterizing Cindy's samples um, right out of the gate uh, because of these people that have heard the story. And as I said, it's sad, but inspirational. And some these people have been inspired to donate. And others, I would add, too, have followed in Cindy's footsteps. They've seen her story and they had the chance to donate their brain tissues as well. So Sheila now has uh, several other um, brain samples and more, sadly, <laughs> yeah, sadly more are coming. Well, that was really the goal of, one of the goals of today's discussion was to encourage awareness that th this can be done. Um, it's too easy for, uh, a family with a, with someone who is in a terminal state to uh, consider that to be the end when they really fail to realize that there is a way to have their legacy live on in the form of helping others. And I think that's really powerful stuff. And I, I, I really appreciate you spending the time with me here today on this because, you know, when you, when you talk about innovation fund, um, you know, $15,000, $10,000 award, some people may be scratching their head and saying, you know, that can't do very much. But in this day and age of sequencing and genomics, you can get a lot of information uh, as a postdoc or grad student to use as a springboard for your own career that could come from these efforts. So it's extremely realistic that, uh, that even a modest contribution to this fund could result in significant resources going forward that could eventually come back to help a loved one in, in, in someone else's universe. So, and speaking of helping others and helping others with the loss and maybe build some hope, the cell lines that come from these types of efforts are said to be immortalized because they last forever. And how does that strange irony play out here with Cindy making a forever gift and how does that help with the process of grieving yeah that's a great point kevin because yeah uh, well on the personal side um uh my sons dean and darwin uh sheila gave them a tour of her lab and it was so cute she got them 
lab coats with their names on it. It was at Halloween, so they had a big you know, Halloween thing. You know, Buzz Lightyear was one of the postdocs showing the boys, boys around. <laughs> um, but one really neat thing that they got to do was see their mom's uh, brain cells under the microscope, and they were playing with the microscope, and they went on a what was called a spherical hunt, which is basically little send these cells would start to form little tumors as best I can understand it. So they were hunting around the microscope, trying to find these two tumor cells. And the, and I think they truly appreciate that this was a piece of their mummy that, you know, and they were, were seeing her. Um, but yeah, you mentioned that these cells are immortal. So Cindy's cell lines will be used for research for decades to come. And that that is powerful stuff. Um, so her legacy you know, will live on and contribute not only to research on glioblastoma, but you know, other things. You, know, you can use these cells, uh, brain stem cells for all sorts of different types of research. Uh, so the contributions just just keep coming, and I'm just very proud of you know what Sydney's contributed to this world, both in life and in death. So, no, it's an interesting point because even though the system couldn't find a cure for her, she may be instrumental in finding the cure for somebody else. Absolutely, the uh, the uniqueness. Again, which I didn't come to realize until well into the process. Uh, once Sheila, once we get the money together and the team can fully characterize this and get this information, this data out to the world, uh, real advances can be made. And, you know, Cindy's cell lines, I presume, will be made available to the world. Uh, and I think. The boys often say, um, I mean, I'll tell the story to the boys and they say, so, so, so mommy was a hero. <laughs> she was. She is. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, you got me too. Uh, Thomas, uh, thank you for taking the time to do this. And uh, having the strength to get through something really difficult because it's so super important. And, you know, it would have been easy to put this off another year or another six months or however, you know, another decade for, for us to have this conversation. But um, there are people right now who suffer from the same thing mm -hmm. and giving them the hope that cures are coming. Yeah. may be a very significant part of their healing and something that will really reinforce their family's ability to get through it is a very difficult time. So yeah. thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. And uh, I might actually you can edit this, I guess, but I've, uh, I've said in other interviews that glioblastoma, it stole our hope. It has a way of doing that, but through, through all this, you know, I have hope again. So hopefully others will, and hopefully your your listeners will spread the word. And you know, if they know anybody that's maybe facing this, that they can get the word out, and we can we can make a difference. And someday we can beat this. And thank you to Dr. Sheila Singh and Dr. Thomas Graham for their time today on this special episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. And thank you to you, the listener, who you've always been extremely generous with your downloads and your comments and uh, your notes to me talking about uh, how much you appreciate what we do. And it means a lot. And it would mean a lot to me and mean a lot to Dr. Graham and others if you could support the Cindy Graham funds. Just a little bit is a big deal. Gosh, it adds up fast. And if there's one thing the internet has taught us is that a little bit from everybody sometimes can solve some big problems. So go to cindysgift.com and see if uh, you can maybe make a little donation there to one of the funds. And uh, read the stories, read the links, re watch the news stories. 
and share them in your social media during this season of giving because even if they don't support the fund if we open up a conversation about the value of a gift of life through donation of organs and tissues and how they can spur on additional research we're giving a great gift to the future and to each other that may have significant dividends down the road Thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. And I need to mention that this podcast is not a product of the University of Florida. It's faculty, staff, or students, and the ideas suggested do not represent any of those entities. They are the private thoughts of Dr. Kevin Folta and his guests. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.